Well, this morning we're going to be focusing on the Ark of the Covenant. And for, for a lot of people, like, you may not know too much about this. For some of you, you may base it on Indiana Jones. Like, for those who have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, the whole movie is about finding the Lost Ark and I suppose trying to either, I suppose the Germans wanted to use its power to, to basically build up their, their armies and everything like that where Indiana Jones wanted to stop them using that power. And once, once they saved the day, they, they boxed it up and hide it in this little factory, never to be seen again because it's so dangerous. And they actually sort of portray it as something that it's a weapon in itself, like some kind of supernatural weapon. Now, that's not the way the Bible talks about it at all. Okay, so if you've got the Indiana Jones sinking in your head, kind of just push it to a side. It's a good movie, it's a good story, but it's not what the Bible's talking about. The, the Ark of the Covenant was actually the central focus of God for the Israelites. Um, once it was made, it lived in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and um, it was the tent that moved with the Israelites. So the Ark of the Covenant was with them throughout their time in the wilderness. Because basically, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, got instructions for the Ten Commandments, and then he got a whole lot of instructions about other things he needed to do, about what the people should do and, and how they should build the tabernacle and this and that. And the Ark of the Covenant was was part of that. And very specific instructions were given to how it should be made, um, who it should be made by, and how it should be used, and how it should be carried. It was very, God said this, I want to make it clear that there is, there is a way to do this. There's a way to acknowledge my presence among you. So it wasn't something that God just went willy-nilly go, oh, you do something that represents me. God was very clear with his instructions, which is important for later on. But it represented the presence of God among them. Okay, now the problem is sometimes we, and we've done it throughout history as well, like the, the, I suppose the Christians throughout history would go to war carrying what they thought was a piece of the cross going, this is imbued with God's power somehow. I think the Israelites kind of went that way and thinking this out, this somehow will guarantee us victory. This thing is like, even though it's meant to represent God, we're going to use it as a thing. And when we start to use things that represent God or get us what we want, that actually becomes an idol in our life. So that I think the Israelites kind of started going down that direction because they forgot it was meant to represent God's presence and therefore our reaction to God's presence. Okay, so like if if we don't react to God's presence, then there's something wrong with our worship, the way that we live. If we come into God's presence, it should it actually demands a reaction from us. So if you don't react in God's presence. I would go as far as saying this, you are not in God's presence. You might be observing it from a distance. You might be reading about it in a book. You might be hearing it from a story from someone else. But you yourself are not in the presence of God because God's presence demands a reaction. You see that throughout scripture. Jeremiah, vision of God, what does he do? Fall down on his knees. Even Nebuchadnezzar, when he sees, when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego go into the fire, he sees the presence of a fourth person. And what does he do? He falls down on his knees. The presence of God will produce a reaction in you. And that's, that's going to be an underlying principle for today. But with the ark, the, the Israelites kind of, once they, they got into the, the promised land, it, the tabernacle got, I suppose, a permanent place and it lived there. And we jump, 
few, quite a few years to when Samuel was a boy. Um, you would remember that, Jimmy. So, um, um, but when Samuel was a boy, he was living in the, um, at, at the tabernacle. He was under the care of Eli, who was the high priest at the time. And what had happened, and we see this, this continues on for quite a while because we actually see it in the life of David. The Philistines were quite, they were like the nemesis of Israel. And so this is the early stories of that. And so there was a battle between Israel and, and the Philistines and the Israelites were worried about losing the battle. So Eli's sons, who were actually in line to become priests, but they were wicked men. Now, if you are wicked men and you are lining up to do the duty of God, there's something wrong there. And so they had lost the point totally. But they went, you know what, if we go get the Ark of the Covenant and we actually go out before the army, our army is guaranteed to win. Now, what that is, it's a form of magic. It's not how God works because they weren't actually trying to experience the presence of God. They were not actually trying to be obedient to God. They were trying to get something they were wanting by magical or spiritual means. And so, of course, as they went to battle, the battle was lost by the Israelites. And it was first and further disheartening because the Philistines then took the Ark of the Covenant. Not only have we lost a battle that we're being, again, we've, we've got God representing going before us and we've lost. How can that happen? How can God lose? They start losing faith. But the Ark of the Covenant has actually been taken as a spoil of war. And so what ends up happening is a really interesting story because the Ark of the Covenant then gets taken to all these different places in Philistine. And God says, "What? you know what, I'm going to show you that I'm the real God. You guys think you've won. And all of a sudden, plagues and, and, and petulance starts happening around the Philistines. And so they get to the point going, we don't want the Ark here. Send it to the next place. And so eventually they, they make the decision after moving it multiple times going, okay, we don't want the presence of God. It's not good for us. It actually goes into their temple, or the temple of Dagon. And they put it before, like there's steps going up. So imagine the steps going up here and the, the statue of Dagon's up there and they put the Ark of the Covenant in front of the statue of Dagon as a way, like you are before, you are lower than the, the, um, the statue of Dagon. You are lower than our God. And they come back in the morning and it didn't quite work out the way they thought because the statue had actually fallen down and it was actually now bowing before the Ark of the Covenant and it had broken off. At this point in time, the Philistines realised we're actually in trouble with God right now. We're not in trouble with the Israelites because they didn't really truly believe in God anyway at that point in time. And so we're actually in trouble with God. So we've got to do something to get us out of this trouble. So they actually then make all this like little gold sort of tumours, they call them, and, and they, they basically pay the Israelites to take the Ark of the Covenant back. Okay, this boil of war that showed such a great victory for the Philistines, they're saying, hey, can, um, can you take it back and we'll pay you lots of money to do it. Now, the Israelites, they took it back, but they it basically ended up, um, uh, there was a Kiriath Jerim uh, came up and took the Ark of the Lord and he brought it back to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. And the Ark remained at Kiriath Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Now, this is significant in the time frame of things. So I'm going to just pause this out because 20 years, so what happens? The Ark gets brought back into the land of Israel and around this time, the people start looking for a king. And who do they find? Saul. They find King Saul. Now, for the next 20 years, Saul does nothing 
to go bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. The thing that actually represents the presence of God, the focus of people's worship of God, is not brought back into the proper place of worship, which actually shows for Saul it was an important thing. Now, there's going to be an important point here because I'm going to sort of show David's reaction to that in a little bit. But the thing is, you sort of look at Saul's life, he struggled to acknowledge God in his fullness. He tried to find shortcuts to get what he wanted, what he needed. And in the end, he lost everything. And here's just an underlying thing that right from his get-go, the Ark of the Covenant, the centerpiece of God for the Israelites was left on the outskirts of their country in someone's home. That's what happened to it for 20 years. Now, I remember when I first came to the church here about 10 years ago, there was stuff that we had stored in the shed that had probably been there for maybe five or 10 years before that. And you forget about those things. And so we, we go through, and in, in, in the end, you do this when you move as well. You go back and go, what things have we been hanging on to for all this time that just need to be thrown out? You forget about it. And so essentially the Israelites had forgotten about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Pavina has read from uh, 2 Samuel 6, but in 2 Samuel 5, what you see, all of a sudden the civil war between David and one of Saul's sons has come to an end and David is now king over all of Israel. He has finally got to the point where God's prophecy and anointment has come to fruition. He is king over all of Israel. And in doing that, you actually see there's two other things he does. The next thing he does, he actually takes the, the city of Jerusalem, what would become the, the, the holy city. The city of David was the first thing he did. Second thing is you're reading through that chapter after he's become king, takes Jerusalem. Second thing is they have a fight against the Philistines to basically properly put them in their place. And then you'd start chapter 6. So the third thing David did was to go get the ark. So you see, for 20 years, Saul had forgotten about it. David, it was the third thing. And the city of Jerusalem was an important aspect as well because the city of Jerusalem was where the ark was going to come back to. So you kind of go, for David, it was a, it was a focal point. But it still didn't go to plan. Like, it still totally didn't go to plan um, for David. So, But what we see, he went up and, and we see the start of chapter 6. We see the focal point of David. So... Um, in verse, um, verses 1 and 2, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he and all his men went up to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. How, how many of the men did he get, all the able men? But how, how many was it, what was the word before it? All, all the able young men. It wasn't some, it wasn't a select crew, it wasn't a representative of all, the, of all the young men, it was all the able young men. So David said, if we're going to transport the ark, we're going to do this completely. I'm not going to send an envoy, I'm not going to send a squadron of guards, I'm not going to send a, someone else. All the able young men are going to come and they're going to move this. And so there is something in us that what we need to realize when it comes to worship and following God and being obedient to God and seeking God in all his, it it needs to be something that we put above all else. 
And it, so it needs to be above anything else that you want to put in that place. And this is, I suppose, the biggest struggle for us. We so easily insert something else in here at this point. And the thing is, it doesn't have to even be a bad thing. Should family come before God? I'm going to put that one first because you know what? That's where we, we a lot of us struggle there. Because I know family, family is the most important. I'm going, if you put God first, your family will never be at a loss. If you put your family first, well, things will start to fall apart because God helps us with family. God has designed the family. God has designed marriage. God has got his best plans for that. So when God does that, all of a sudden we get in a position where like if we put something else first in that place, if we put our job in front of that place, if we put the pursuit of money in front of that place, if we put our own identity in front of that place, all of a sudden something else takes that place of worship and God says, above all else, I want you to worship me with all your being. And that's what David did. He committed all of Israel to worship God. And in so doing, what happened, he created this idea to desire his presence. To desire his presence. Again, confession time a little bit. Has anyone ever sort of been in a place where sometimes... You're reluctant to enter God's presence because of the inconvenience of it. God, I'm too busy. God, I've got, I've got junk I've got to deal with and I don't really have time for that right now or I'm busy doing other stuff. The thing is, if we have a desire for his presence and we want to put that above all else, all of a sudden that's the first and foremost thing we want to do. Each day that we live, it becomes something that God wants to be that priority. And, and it's something that all of a sudden that we'll get into a place where we will be able to focus on him as we live all other aspects out of our lives. And so what happens is that we've got to be at a point where, yeah, is God the first thing we think about in the morning? Is God what drives what we do during the day? Or is God get our leftovers? Does God get those things that happen in our lives when we go, do you know what, I, I, I have some time five minutes before I go to bed to reflect on my day and go, God, thank you for getting me through it. Above all else is what David did to desire his presence. And again, that's a great intention, great start. But as we read through this story, it actually doesn't go to plan. Again, these are one of these stories, if we don't fully understand I suppose the whole context of it, what ends up happening is that it actually sounds a bit of a, God sounds a bit unfair in this story. Because what happens next, David gets all the men together and they stay, they, he makes this brand new cart and he puts the Ark of the Covenant with, with fresh oxen and they're going to take it to Jerusalem and they're going to get it there. So David's got his, his, he's thought up a plan that he thinks will honor God. And as it's going along, the Ark of the Covenant, it hits a bump, or the, the card hits a bump, and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark, and he is burned by the wrath of God. Now again, it sounds really unfair, but the problem's not in the new card. Well, it is in a way. It's, the problem's not in Uzzah touching it. It's the fact that they haven't gone back right to beginning to the specific instructions of what God had actually told them to do with the Ark of the Covenant. On the corners of the Ark of the Covenant were four rings, which um, um, poles were meant to go through, and it was meant to be carried. It was never meant to go on a cart, new cart or not. And I think sometimes what happens, we come up with what we think are 
effective ways or new ways of, of, of doing what God wants to do. And God says, no, I don't want you to do it that way. I, I do have, there is a right way to worship me. And so if you want to redefine it and do it in a, a brand spangled new way, it may not be worship. It may be about you. And so the thing is, if the cart had been carried, if the ark had been carried properly, there would have been no stumbling. There would have been no wheels rolling. There would have been no one touching it. The fact that he even went out to touch it showed that he didn't understand fully what the ark was. Didn't fully understand who God was. He, he was sort of loosely playing around with the presence of God. And so, so this happens along the way. And, and so David got upset. David goes, I was trying to do something for you, God. I did something for you. Now in that, there's probably a little bit of David was doing something for God that would actually make him look good as well. It wasn't totally about God. And so he had lost his way a little bit in that. And so David got upset. He said, I can't bring the Ark of the Covenant back. I'm going to put it at this guy's home and I'll work out what happens. Now the thing is, Obed-Edom, all of a sudden, it stayed at his place. And I think the family there, Obed, um, they say it was from a Levitical background, so we understood what the Ark of the Covenant was. It probably had, it probably had the place of worship that it was meant to have. And so all of a sudden, for the next three months, his house was blessed. It doesn't go into how he was blessed or anything like that, but it was blessed for three months. So much so that David went, oh, wait a second, we can actually do this right. The, the Ark of the Covenant is not something to be feared or worried about, but if we seek to honor God correctly, then we can actually do it. And so we need to understand that the difference between Uzzah and, and, and Obed-Eben was there was a, a right way to worship. There was a, a right heart to worship with. There was a right understanding of who God was. And again, like God, God will forgive us those times when we are just a little bit ignorant. I was speaking to someone this week and, and they were talking about, oh, oh I used to think that when I, when I died and went to heaven, I'd run up and give God a hug and, and, and I'm going now, I feel like that's actually, that's not the right way to think. I, I'd have to bow down and worship. And I said to her, well, you're actually right on both accounts. God is both those things. But the thing is, sometimes we get too casual with God and we go, oh yeah, we're just hanging out with my mate God. And we go, well, that's, that's a great that you've got an intimacy, but also we need the understanding of his, his awesomeness and, 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 and fullness. And so sometimes we need to be able to sort of get a fuller picture of who God is. And that, that's in seeking out uh, his presence and doing that. So what we actually come to realize is as David then goes on to basically bring the ark back on a, on a second trial, um, and we see this in... Um, in 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 to 13. Now, King David was told, The Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Okay, so first of all, you actually see David change his intent and changed his practice of doing this. And so what we see that he understood that God, he, he understood that God deserves our time. And the same for us. He deserves your time. And if you are unable to give God your time, we go back to that first point of him being above all else, then he's not above all else in your life. 
So God deserves our time. And so what you see David doing, all of a sudden the cart, the cart idea would have been expedient. They would have just driven the oxen and they would have just kept plodding along and they would have made it to Jerusalem in a lot quicker method. As soon as you transport the ark in the right way with people carrying it, it's going to be slower. The, 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 the Levites who would have carried it would have got tired. They would have had to rest more. But David added another element to it. He said, I want to worship God more fully than I had intended to begin with. So every six steps, we're going to stop and we're going to offer a burnt sacrifice. Now, the thing is, probably to put it in our context a little bit, that was their form of a worship service. That was their form of taking time to worship God. And so they would walk six steps, stand there, offer a, a fattened calf, celebrate who God was, and they'd take another six steps. Now, you think our church services go long, okay? Okay, don't ever complain about that again. We'll do this one Sunday, eh? Um, but the good thing about it, it would have been a road smelling like barbecue. Like, that's what it would have smelt like along the way. Like, um, and it would have been a different type of, um, of church. But basically, what we see David did, he actually understood that God deserved his time and he, he took the deliberate step of slowing down. Of slowing down and going, do you know what? God deserves my time and I'm going to push other things out so that I can give more time to him. Anyone here struggle with slowing down? Only a couple of you, okay? Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out on a, a, a limb here. I think some of you are lying. So we, we, all, struggle to, we all struggle to slow down at times. And I, I was talking to um, um, Pastor Rex this week and we just got chatted about this, this particular thing about of, of the speed of the world. Everyone seems to get busier. And, but the thing is, as a church, as God's people, we've kind of got the same expectation. Anyone ever get patients lining up in, in drive through Anyone get impatient lining up in a bank? We get impatient sort of, and any other thing, like there's a process in place, but I want it done yesterday. And so we become part of that expectation that life needs to be fast, people need to be working harder, and then we wonder why we have to work harder. So sometimes we need to stop and say, no, this is more important. This needs to take my attention. I'm going to slow down to fit this in. And that might mean removing some things from our lives. And that's a hard thing because we kind of get this general sort of discussion all the time. You've got to add a layer. You've got to add another layer. You've got to do more. You've got to have more money. You've got to buy this next thing. You've got to do this the other thing. You've got to have time for this. You've got to do this. You've got to watch that latest rubbish show that's on TV. You've got to do it. And all of a sudden, we don't have time to do the things that we that God wants us to do. I, I, I would dare you, I will dare you to do this, to go home and actually do an inventory on your time. And to see how much time God actually gets of you. Check out how much time you spend on the TV. How much time you spend complaining about things or gossiping about things. How much time you spend worrying about things. And, and, or how much time you spend like doing things that have no real value. Like we, we still have to feed the kids. We still have to do those things. But like, but again, it's one of these things where I think you'd be surprised about how much or how little we give God and how little much we give to everyone else or everything else. We do need to slow down. We move on now to um, 2 Samuel 6.14. So David is, every six steps, 
sacrificing a fattened calf, worshipping God. But as this is happening, we see in Samuel 6.14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Okay, so this is going to be uncomfortable for some people. Okay, because the thing is, we want to be looked like we're in control. We want to look cool. We want to be sort of like, we want to look like, we want to be like that person that accidentally trips but like recovers real quickly and go, that didn't happen. Because what we see that later on in this chapter, his wife at the time saw David dancing and said, what you are doing is beneath you. It's actually, it's sort of, it's beneath your, your, it's beneath the dignity of your office as king. You should have someone else doing that or, or they shouldn't be doing it at all. Like we should be worshipping God in this way. But this is what we need to re- realise that David actually, and Robin talked about this earlier, the idea of passion. With all your might, you actually worship God. With all that you are, you worship God. And David danced for his father. David was dancing for God. It wasn't anyone else. There was no dancing with the stars. And I think he would have actually got marked down on the style of dance. And again, if he was dancing for the whole time that those cows were being... I'm going, he would have been tired at the end of that. Now, some people said like he was, he was half naked and, and all this other stuff. But in reading the linen ephod, like, it would have been a, a light tunic. Now, again... For everyone that says that he was almost naked, like other people say, no, it was just he was wearing clothes that were had spiritual sort of uh, significance but wasn't sort of like a, a priestly thing. But David was dancing. And so this is the thing. David was looking foolish for the purpose of worshipping God. Now, it wasn't like going out going, I want to be, I want to be a fool, but I'm willing to be foolish for the sake of honouring my God. Now, this is where this becomes significant because, you know, sometimes we want to keep so in check in our life of worship for God, not just singing at church, because at church sometimes we go, I'm not going to sing with passion because I don't want to look foolish, my voice is not great. I love it when, and we've had a few people in our church over the years, people that they, they can't keep a tune, they don't know when the words are coming in, but you know when they're singing. Like, they just go, do you know what? If I'm going to sing, I'm going to put everything in there. And so they'll sing and all of a sudden they come in half a line too early. And I sit there going, do you know what? They are holding nothing back from God. Where some of us go, because we don't want other people to be put off. Like, we, we, we're worried about what other people are doing. Because it's not about you when you worship, it's about God. So David went, now with all my might, I'm going to dance for my father. I'm going to look foolish for the sake of worshipping God. But it, it applies in other areas of our lives. I, again, like as, as parents, I don't know if you've ever come across a situation where you have the opportunity to, to represent God in a certain area, like um, saying grace in public or talking to someone about Jesus. And, 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 and the thing is, you might have someone with you. It could be wife or husband or someone else. And you are so passionate about sort of representing God that you'll go up and say, hey, and just start a conversation about God. And all of a sudden the people with you go, this is so embarrassing. Oh, they just never stop talking about Jesus. Like, oh, I wish, I wish they would have waited till I left. And I'm going, wait a second. 
you have someone here who's willing to be obedient in full to God's call on their life. And what do we do? We tell them to pull, pull back, step down. We need to turn that around. We need to live our lives in a passion which seeks to honor God in all his glory. And that actually is every area of your life. That's your family life. That's your work life. That's your, okay, I'm by myself life. That's my coming to church life. That's actively trying to serve God in different ways. It is every single element of your life. It's not just confined to this hour on a Sunday. We live foolishly in obedience to God. Now, just so you can relax, most of the time God will not ask us to do something crazy. But I can't rule out that he will ask you to do something crazy. Just make sure it's him that's asking you to do it. Okay? Don't sort of get, don't get ahead of God. Don't build a new cart for worship and go, this is what God wants me to do. But God never asked you to do that. Because then you'll actually just look foolish and God will be going, I didn't ask you to do that one. It wasn't me. That's all on you. But God will ask us to do foolish things. The Bible is full of stories like that. So as we wrap up, I want to look at 2 Samuel towards the end of this chapter, 6, 18 to 19. And after he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. David, again, he started with this idea of like, let's, let's be all in in this. Let's, and, and our worship should bring about a blessing to those around us. And so David made a choice that with all my heart, I'm going to bless my people. I'm going to bless the people they hear. And, and this is the thing. So all those sacrifices happen along the way. This is one thing we don't realize fully. When, unless it was like a, a total burnt offering, most of the time when an offering happened, Parts of the offering would be taken away and given out, some to the Levites and some to the people that bought the offering. And so David had done all these offerings and basically collected up all the bits that were allowed to be left over. And they also had fellowship offerings, which were like grain and different things. They were also um, done up. And all of a sudden he had all this food packages, picnic hampers done up for the people because they had been part of this time of worship. He said, I'm going to seek to bless you and send you home in that spirit of blessing. I'm going to seek to do that so that with all all my heart, I want you to know that God wants you to be a part of this and to continue in this. I'm going to bless you in that. Now, sometimes a blessing can be an encouragement that we pass on. We can say to someone after church, I really appreciate how you do that. Catch up with them during the week. How are you going with that? It can be a physical blessing that we pass on. Here's some money, here's some food, here's some, here's some physical help I can give you to help out. But there is a desire within the people of God. And in seeking to worship God, we actually seek to, with all our heart, bless those around us. And the thing is, what happens so often is that we, we get back in the habit that worship is about me. Worship is about what I like, the songs I like, the way I like them done. And I'm going to, as soon as you even get close to that point, you have missed the mark altogether. Worship is about God. And then with that, we are able to continue worshiping God through blessing his people in any way that God calls us to do. So as we look at the heart of worship and, and actually understanding in the context of, of, of the chase, like we need to have a worshipful heart. 
And, and again, just to, to just so you are clear, it goes way beyond this time on a Sunday. If you cannot worship when you go home this afternoon, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we can worship God. If you can't worship God on Monday morning when you rock up to work, hey, let's talk about that. Because God wants us to worship at those times in our lives as well. A heart of worship is something that will infuse all that we do. It will keep our focus on God. It will keep obedience in our steps. And it will seek our hearts to, to look around us, to continue to be seeking the will of God, not only for ourselves, but for those around us, so that we can be a blessing to them as well. So this week, this day, will you choose to have a heart of worship? A heart that is looking to honour God and honour his will around you. Let's just take the time to pray. Lord, we thank you for, I suppose, the passion of David. We, we thank you that even as he makes mistakes in the area of worship, he seeks to come back to you and, and honour you. And, and, and in so honouring your will and seeking to bless his people. I, I pray that we would understand what it is to be foolish in our worship of you as we seek to be obedient in everyday life, as we seek to sing with all our heart, as we look to, to overcome our struggles by focusing on you. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today that you will begin a mighty move in our own hearts that will lead to an action in our, in our minds, in our hands, in our feet, as we put you first and seek to bless those around us. Pray this in your name. Amen.